question before us is, do you think Jesus always wants us to be simple and straightforward with people? In these regularly surprising teachings, this might see, seem like a no-brainer, a non-surprise, right? Because in life, you know, we got the good versus evil. We got the friends of Jesus, the enemies of Jesus. The Hannibals, the Darths, the Gollums, the Chuckies, the Jung-Ills, the Husseins, the Simon Cowells, and anything played by John Malkovich are enemies of Jesus, right? These are the bad people, right? <laughs> Meanwhile, <laughs> the, uh, the Clark Kents, right? The Indiana Joneses, the Winston Churchills, and anything played by Jackie Chan, Owen Wilson, or Tobey Maguire, these are friends of Jesus, all right? You get it right. Or at least allies. If they're not good friends, they're allies, right? So, uh, Winston Churchill. I want to throw that out there for the Brits here. So, but what is, and what is known as probably the most difficult parable to understand, the most difficult parable that Jesus tells to, to really comprehend, Jesus seems to favor, favor in this case, a more complex character. Um, more like your, your, kind of like your Robin Hood types. All right? Remember Robin Hood, he robbed from the rich to to the poor. <laughs> That's right. Some of us have seen Robin Hood. Uh, it's good. So, and, and by which, I mean uh, not, not Robin Hood Men in Tights version. All right, not that one, although I love Mel Brooks. All right? If you don't know who Mel Brooks is, he's kind of like, um, I would say the American version of like Monty Python. Right? He's got all these movies, very funny, kind of encapsulates American humor. You know, anyway. All right, so... Um, not the Kevin Costner version. Whoa, what is that? <laughs> I realized that's in Spanish. Kevin Costner, Robin Hood, O Principes de la Dores. <laughs> I just noticed that. <laughs> Which that should be Prince of Thieves. Um, so, just learned a little Spanish there. That's fun. And not even the Russell Crowe version coming out soon, which I'm very much looking forward to watching. Uh, not this kind of Robin Hood. Um, more like... More like my favorite Robin Hood, which is the 1973 Disney version of Robin Hood. That's right. That's right. Yes. That is my, it's my favorite non-Pixar Disney movie. I love Robin Hood. Our kids actually watched it this morning. Again. I mean, I love this version because think about it. Robin Hood is a fox, right? As in uh, stupid like a fox or, yeah, he's crazy. Crazy like a fox, Right? The fox is the prototypical, sneaky, shrewd character, right? That's who a fox is, uh, which is really, that's really brilliant, brilliant casting by Disney. To go and get a fox for this role, that was awesome. This is really smart. So I give them credit for that. But through a fox-like, Robin Hood-esque kind of character, Jesus challenges the notion that it's always good to be very simple and straightforward with people which might be surprising to us. It was to me. And so we're going to look at this this morning. If you have a Bible, open it to Luke 16. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. Luke 16, verses 1 through 13. Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. 
And he called him. He said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What am I going to do? What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful with much. And one who is dishonest and very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. All right, you guys ready for this? Get ready to strap on your mental thinking caps because if you can't go all the way and thinking through this sermon, you, might, you kind of might as well throw in the towel now. So pray with me. Lord, we need your help in understanding this. Um, I already, uh, since there's a moral dilemma here and then uh, what you're saying and, and this shrewd manager, God, give us wisdom to think it through and how it applies to our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Last couple weeks, we have been talking about one of the most glorious stories in the Bible about the passionate love of a father towards a prodigal son and an elder brother. We've been looking at that for the last couple weeks. And this week, we get one of the weirdest, the weirdest stories Jesus ever tells. It's strange and it's hard to understand. Um, I was trying to envision myself the other day, you know, like as a grandfather in a rocking chair in front of a fireplace which, I don't know, that, that wasn't too hard to envision because I'm already acting like an old man. But gathering all the kids around, right? Hopefully grandkids, this sort of thing. And you're telling them stories from the Bible. That's, maybe that sounds cheesy to some of you. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. And so I gather them around, open up the Bible, and I get to this story. And I was thinking, what would I say? You know, Let me tell you, kids, about this manager who swindled his master out of money, but the master, oh, the master, he was so proud of him. <laughs> you know, what would, I, what would I tell these kids? Like, how do I explain this? And it brings up all kinds of questions, right? But mainly two, and that is, does Jesus really approve of this sort of shifty kind of behavior? And even if so, what am I supposed to do with this? What do I do with this in my own life? 
thankful for the Holy Spirit who helps us understand his word and apply it to life. Um, since this whole thing, though, seems kind of backwards, kind of weird, would you agree with that? Kind of weird story? Raise your hand, yeah? Okay. Since it seems kind of backwards, I thought it'd be fitting that we work through the passage backwards. And I think it might actually help us make sense of it. So we're going to start in verse 13, then go to verses 10 through 12, and then end with the actual parable in verse 1 through 9. So we're going to start with this. It all comes down to love and the Benjamins, right? To love and money. Verses sort of start and end here. They find their apex here in verse 13, where Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Many have tried, right? But pretty much none have succeeded to serve both God and money. Doesn't mean money's inherently evil. Doesn't mean you can't have money. It just means if that is your master, then you can't serve God as your master. Um, money, think about money this week. Money, when it comes down to it, is really security, right? That's why Jesus contrasts the two here. God provides eternal security for us through Jesus Christ. We can be in heaven forever with him, through faith in him. But money is used as a means to make sure you're safe and comfortable, right? We don't love, people don't love money for money's sake. They love it because of the layers of security it provides, right? Security from destitution, from poverty, from hunger. For most of us, we're sitting here this morning, for most of us, not all of us, for most of us, that's not an immediate, eminent issue. That's why we like more money, right? People like more money. They like money to provide us security from, you know, losing certain goods we have, even at home. We like money for the security provides, even to be apart from certain kinds of people, right? People sometimes use money so they don't have to uh, get to know certain classes of people, right? Certain ethnicities, certain races. People use money in this way to provide layers of protection, People want additional layers of security to the point where it becomes an addiction. Right? I remember uh, Bill Gates. Bill Gates, the richest man in the world, uh, owner of Microsoft, CEO. Basically, until he had a recent kind of of philanthropic uh, swing to his life, when he would go overseas, he hated to eat anywhere other than McDonald's. Hated it. Right, not because he liked his, you know, uh, you know, like his Big Mac and fries, you know, and his, or his number two combo. It wasn't that with the supersize me. He didn't like to eat anywhere else because he was cheap. The richest man in the world hated spending money. Hated it. Because he wanted more and more money. This is how money works, right? Once you get more of it, you have a hard time letting it go. It's not the Bible, people often think the Bible says the money is the root of all evils. It doesn't say that, does it? It's close. It doesn't say the money is the root of all evils. It says the love of money is the root of all evils. Money is, is neutral. In fact, in this passage it says, uh, by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, you may be received into eternal dwellings. The idea is, it's not intrinsically righteous. It's just, it's going to fail. Everything that's righteous will be raised up to eternal life. Money is not that. That's why, even in this passage, Jesus says, when it fails, because money will ultimately fail. Kind of a side note there. But, 
Money, because of the illusion of security it provides, will always be dangerously addictive. I'm not really telling you anything you don't know. But this is interesting. The Hebrew word, it's probably why this is, the Hebrew word for money, kesef, comes from a verb meaning to desire or to languish after something. You hear that? To languish. I love that word, languish. It's that unquenchableness about money. You guys know who Bernie Madoff is? You heard this name? Raise your hand if you've heard a name, Bernie Madoff. Okay, so most of us. Uh, the jailed financer and Ponzi schemer um, who cost his clients somewhere around $65 billion because of his scams. Interesting what he said. He said this a couple different occasions, and it really um, kind, of, kind of just perked up in my mind. He said this, I wish they caught me six eight years ago. And I wish they called me six, eight years ago. He went on to explain why. Why was it because, you know, he'd be able to serve his jail term earlier and get out before, you know, the day he dies. No, he's got a, he's got a lifelong term in prison. It wasn't that. It's because back then, he wasn't enslaved to money. But as the money came in, the 65 billion, amen, he became increasingly enslaved to it. He started to languish after it. I wish they called me six to eight years ago. Might not be in the same place. There always comes a point with money where we're forced to choose, right? Situations in our life come up where we're forced to choose between God and money. It's the, like the man of Matthew 13. Matthew 13, 44. So says, Jesus tells a real brief parable. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. All right? So, we all face with a choice to keep what I have and go about with life as usual. Or at least this man faces his choice. Or do I sell all I have for the greater prize? There's a lottery out there to be won. Which one's the true lottery? This man gets it. The true prize. It's Christ, and the choice is easy. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that weighing the cost, remember this, we talked about weighing the cost of following Jesus. Is it worth it? Is he worth it? And that the cost isn't so much about the cost of following Jesus, but it's about the great treasure of who he is. And that's got to be our point of view here as well. Um, if Christ is worth the cost, you'll do anything to spend it all, to spend the cost in order to enter into eternal dwellings. It says in verse 9. Like the man in the field will face his choice daily. Will God influence my decisions or will money? Without Christ as our treasure, or at least if we don't kind of aspire for Christ to be our treasure, the rest of this passage doesn't make a lot of sense. So we've got to get this part down first. Here's how you know what you serve, God or money. Just to, well, just one test, one, one, one thought. Is there a dollar amount it would take to get you to stop reading the Bible? I, I know, I mean, who's going to do that, right? I, but I want to just, hypothetically, you suspend reality here for a moment. We do it for movies all the time. Is there a dollar amount you would take to stop reading the Bible? Could I write you a check for amount of your choosing to stay away from worshiping with God's people on a Sunday morning. 
hundred dollars, thousand dollars, hundred thousand dollars, a million dollars? If the answer is yes, you may worship money. If that was really the case, worship money, right? And I, it took me a moment to just really think about that happening. What would I do? And it's hard. It shows you how easily money can enslave. Second thing, why care about how I spend my nickels and dimes? Verse 10 through 12. Why care about how I spend nickels and dimes? Read with me again in verses 10 through 12 here. One who is faithful in a little is faithful in much. One who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give to you that which is your own? These verses suggest that if you can't handle money in a godly manner, then God cannot trust you with anything of true eternal value. And I don't mean like, you know, your life savings, or I don't mean like millions of dollars. I'm talking nickels and dimes here, even. You can't handle money in a godly way. You can't trust you with true riches, as he mentions in verse 11. But what do you think, by the way, Jesus means by true riches? What would you say are some true riches in your, in your life? Some real true riches. Throw some out there for me. You got any? Relationships. Family. Yeah. Health. What else? It's good. Uh, the gospel, right? The good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, to have an opportunity to minister grace and disciple people. A spouse. Right? I mentioned family. All of which are hence towards and, and point towards and culminate in this great treasure of eternal life with Jesus. All these things point to it. Think about it. A family. Shows us how we'll be one big family worshiping the Lord forever and ever in heaven. Right? The, the, even health now, that relative health we have, will be nothing compared to how we breathe and how we move in heaven with complete and total health. Right? All these things point towards eternal life, this great treasure with Jesus in heaven. I want to speak for a moment about nickels and dimes because for some of us, it's not a ton of money. It's nickels and dimes. Right? Uh, you know, I know for us, <laughs> the life I've, that God has put upon me, it's mostly nickels and dimes, being a pastor. But I was doing a Bible study once uh, in 2 Corinthians with this college group. This college group of folks. It was good fun. We always ate together. We fellowshiped. And we got into God's Word. And we were talking about uh, giving to God's work in a local church. Uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 8 and 9 was the passage. And after the study, a young man... Uh, we were talking and shared why that even though he had an income through a regular job, he sort of chose not to give. And he brought this up on his own. I, I didn't know. And he said this. He said, I figure that college is a season or a time in life in which others in the church who are much more wealthy help out those of us who don't make as much. Not too unreasonable, right? And there's a sense in which that's true, even from that St. Corinthians passage we talked about. But there's another sense in which God asks us in response to his grace in our life to give of what we have. Not even just to give or to support, although those things are important as well, but 
He was testing us, right? He's challenging us. He's entrusting you with little to see if you can be faithful with much in your life. Be faithful with true riches in your life. Um, in a couple weeks, we're going to be, uh, God willing, presenting our elder candidates before the church. I mentioned this, I think, last week or a couple weeks ago. Very excited about this. First time we'll have uh, elders in our church and uh, shepherding and this sort of thing and, and doing the things we talked about a number of weeks ago. Very excited. Um, one of the questions I've been asking them is, where is your heart? Where is your heart? It's interesting, right? Because when Jesus talks about this question, where is your heart? He doesn't talk about discipleship. He doesn't talk about, you know, uh, the, the little children receiving the kingdom. He talks about where your heart is, where, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Right? So, Jesus knows, and he says, we know this by where our treasure is, what words and what names, you know, fill the lines of our checkbook. And, you know, I need to know, and these elders, if they can be faithful with much. So we're asking them, are you faithful with little? It's a hard question, not a fun one to ask. But we want to, to be setting an example for that in the church. We... we we know God is calling elders to be faithful with much. So Jesus puts this out, even as a litmus test. For you guys, do you think and pray hard? you think and pray hard about how you use money? Even the nickels and dimes, or is it easy? Is it easy? I know this is a challenging topic. No one likes to talk about money, but it's here. Luke 16 is next up in the passage. Is a decision easy? Or do you have to think and pray hard? You know, I'm often prone to say it's easy, right? It's easy. I got to spend it on having the house cleaned, right? Got to do that. It's easy. We need, we, you know, we got to go out to eat. We need to go out a few times a week, right? Enjoy ourselves, so. which is a good thing. It's easy. We, I need, you know, I need to go out with my buddies. You know, maybe have a beer. Also, you can insert or a few beers, uh, one of those things, right? It's, or it's easy. Yeah, I've got a few days off. I'm going to hop on a plane and skip town. None of these things are bad to do. My question is, is it always a no-brainer for us? I always just say, yeah, yeah. You know, here's my wallet. Other side today. Here's my wallet. I'm going to fork it over. If these decisions go easy on the brain, on the conscience, and they don't require prayer in our life, I would suggest no, that we're not thinking about it hard enough. We're not praying about it. I would even so bold suggest that Jesus would say you need to look partially at your life and partially rethink your impact for his kingdom. It's a bold statement. But this passage, I think, goes on to explain about why this can so impact the kingdom and our influence on it. God cares about how you spend nickels and dimes, how he wants you to spend it, at least according to this passage. So, so far we've covered treasuring Christ above all else. We've talked about how you spend your money. We'll often determine the true riches that God entrusts to you. But now we're going to talk about how he actually specifically encourages us to use money. 
is the hard part. This is the most difficult part of the passage we're going to look at this morning. Number three, selfish. Selfish? You bet you're behind. <laughs> you bet you're behind it's selfish. Verses one through eight. This rich man and the manager. Charges were brought against him that this man was wasting his possessions. He called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Right? This guy, he's, a, he's not a blue-collar worker. Right? He's a white-collar guy. All right? Dirt under his fingernails, it's not happening. This guy. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm way too ashamed to be in public and beg. So he decides what he's going to do. He's going he's to be nice to his clients or his master's clients so that they will in turn be nice to him. He's going to do them a favor. He summons them. He says, I'm going to take some money off your bill. Here you go, here you go, here you go. So, the master, look with me in verse 8, commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you. Probably means angels there. The angels may receive you into eternal dwellings. Okay. The big obstacle here, I think, I think you agree, is the master commends this dishonest manager Right? And then Jesus comes in and says, basically, yes, I am Jesus, and I approve this message. Right? Like, this is good. Right here. You see it. Thumbs up. Right? So, shrewd. Shrewd manager, verse 8. Shrewd means marked by hard-headed practical intelligence. And my hard-headed and practical intelligence but is it moral intelligence? Right? Is it moral? It's a question here. Two possibilities exist that wouldn't make this manager's method so sleazy and dishonest. Alright? Two possibilities exist that wouldn't make this manager's method so sleazy and dishonest. Number one, it gives you kind of the background here. It's important. One, the manager removed his own commission. Alright? The manager removes his own commission. Sacrificing his own money, not the master's. It's possible, right? And fairly shrewd. He's sacrificing temporarily so that long term, people will help him out, they'll welcome him to their home, etc. Possible, fairly shrewd, but not quite as shrewd as the second possibility, which is this. That the, the manager deducted the interest charge from the debt according to the Mosaic Law. See, the Jews were forbidden, forbidden to lend with interest, what was called usury, all right, according to Exodus 22, 25, other places. They were forbidden to lend with interest, but they got around this. They found a loophole. They got around this by lending in kind. So, in exchange for property that they would give people, right, in exchange for that, they would ask for payments in oil and wheat, these kind of agricultural goods. And then they would, instead of money, right? And then they would charge interest on those things. More wheat, more oil. Wasn't money technically. So, it was really a win-win-win scenario. Truly a win-win-win for these people, right? It was a win for those in debt. Obviously, right? I mean, they got like half off in some cases, right? Like, like those commercials you often see, right? Call this number. You can take half off your bills right away. But in this case... 
It's actually true. So it's a win for them. It's a win for the manager because he either gains friends in high places or he gets back his job. And it's a win for the master because he gets some money and this action brings him back in line with God's law. So the master sits back and says, well done. Well done. Why? Because he knew, he knew that the, the, the manager knew that if the master objected, hey, hey, what are you doing with my money? That he would be exposed as a lawbreaker. He'd be breaking the Mosaic law. So it really is quite shrewd, quite shrewd of this manager. Hopefully that explains why he's not such an awful man. But then we read verse 9, right? Jesus' great application of the story. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. What's the connection between this manager acting out of self-interest and Jesus applauding generosity, right? Generosity is supposed to be other-interested. What's the connection here? The connection is that both the applaud of this thing, the applauding of this thing, and the manager acting out of self-interest, both are prompted by self-interest. This is the surprising part of this parable. Both are prompted out of self-interest. In other words, Jesus encourages the use of money to make friends, to win them to the gospel, because you want something for yourself. Because you want something for yourself. Jesus knows our hearts. By nature, we want things for ourselves. And that what we want for ourselves is to be received into eternal dwellings, right? Go to heaven. Be with Jesus forever. And this might surprise us. Jesus encourages selfishness? You know, what? Like, kind of takes over everything I've learned about Jesus. When we think about it, what does the Bible say is the goal of our faith? Is the goal of our faith loving people unselfishly? Is that the ultimate goal? No. Is the goal of our faith you know, serving others again and again, persevering in that? No. 1 Peter 1.9, we read it earlier. What does the Bible literally say this goal of our faith? 1 Peter 1.9 says the goal of your faith is the salvation of your own soul. The goal of your faith is salvation of your own soul. Preserving or continuing your salvation at all costs, above all. But here, here's the catch. How do you preserve your soul? Mark 8.35 shows us this. Here's the, here's the big turn, the twist. If you want to continue your salvation, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. So yes, the goal of your faith is salvation of your own soul. How do you continue in that salvation? How do you save it? By dying to self, looking outward to Jesus, looking to outward to others to minister the gospel to them. That's how. And by doing so, you save your life. Uh, a great book on using money, it's a, a little book called The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. Uh, if you want to lend this sometime, just shoot me an email. Uh, any book you want to lend, by the way, just let me know. Uh, I brought a bunch of books, and um, I hope they don't get lost in a hurricane five years from now. Fingers crossed. Um, 
But he says this in this book. He says selfishness. He's speaking about this issue too, by the way. This issue of where your treasure is and why Jesus says, why do you store up treasures in heaven for yourselves? And it sounds selfish. But he says this. Randy Alcorn says rightly, I think. Selfishness is when we pursue gain at the expense of others. It's got to be at the expense of others. Salvation, friends, the gospel and salvation that results is pretty much the one inexhaustible resource we have on earth. Right? Even love, even just love, what we call love and Hallmark card stuff, that is not inexhaustible because it always, it costs you something to show love to others, etc. But there's plenty. One thing there's plenty of. Plenty of salvation to go around through Jesus Christ. It's like the one thing that we, that we always have more of. Thus, it's at no one's expense. So, use money for your own good. Your good being living with Jesus and eternal dwellings. So back to the question we started at. Do you think Jesus wants us to be simple and straightforward with people always? I think in answering this question... Another question that many a Christian has asked needs to be posed. And that is, is it unloving or wrong for me to spend time with someone so I can share the gospel with them? You ever ask this question? Is it wrong or unloving for me to spend time with someone simply so I can share the gospel with them? In other words, is it wrong to have a, like an agenda? Has anyone ever asked this question before? I, I have asked this question, right? I was good friends with... Uh, um, Orthodox Jew and, a, and a, a Buddhist fellow in college and over all my years of knowing them, they're great guys, uh, all my years of knowing them, only one shared with me why they thought their religion was right and the other never did. Which one did I feel more loved by? I felt more loved by the one who did. The one who believed he had the secret to eternal life and loved me enough to share it. Those who trust Jesus believe the gospel is the key to eternal life, the good news of Jesus, that God is perfect and holy. We have fallen short because of our sin and rebellion. That Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life and died a death we deserved to forgive us. And he rose from the dead to defeat death so that those who trust that he is Lord would never have to taste death. Ah, the gospel, the key, that's the key to eternal life. That, that is loving people. You may not be immediately straightforward with a person and drop the J-bomb, right? Jesus! Right, that's the J-bomb, right? Right after meeting them and saying their name. You may not do that. But the secret you hold and the hope to share with them could forever impact their life on earth and beyond. Is there a more loving agenda to have than that? And this, friends, is where we can apply this passage. To conclude, in a nutshell, use money. You remember nothing else. Remember this statement. We can use money and resources for your own eternal good by making friends for the sake of making a gospel connection with them. Use money and resources for your good by making friends to make a gospel connection with them. That's what we're talking about here. That's eternal dwellings. 
That's the key to eternal life. It's the gospel. I'll give you a few examples how you might do this. Use money to treat a friend to coffee or to lunch. You don't have to tell them right away why you want them to trust their life to Christ or be part of a local church because the Bible tells us that sin has blinded all of mankind. Until the Holy Spirit begins working on their hearts, people don't understand. I didn't understand about the gospel until God worked on me. We all have someone, uh, maybe kind of a mooch in our lives, right? By mooch, I mean someone who continually asks us for rides, money, favors, these sorts of things, right? Perhaps it's someone who's wandered for the faith. Right? We all sometimes think people who are mooching off us, they aren't Christians, clearly. <laughs> but maybe it is someone who's wandered from the faith, uh, and you, I would encourage you to continue to give them rides. And by the way, if you don't have a mooch in your life, and you're not laughing at the word mooch, it might mean because, uh, you know, the, you know, the person next to you, that, that's, that's the mooch. <laughs> They're not laughing because, you know, or it's you. It might be you. I don't know. It's trouble. But I would say continue to bless them. Show, give them rides. Let them borrow your clothes, your earrings. I don't know what that looks like in your life. Make friends. Make friends. It's the idea here. For the sake of the gospel, by means of our unrighteous wealth. Third, is church. Is church a place where you've considered bringing a friend to make a gospel connection with them? Then invest in the church. I know it's easy for me to say, right? Invest in the church. More resources in children's church for the child that your friend brings. Better worship equipment so that your friend can sing along with them. And, and frankly, a uh, nourished preacher. You know, so that he can eat more than cans of pork and beans. Um, which, you know, so the message actually makes sense. I eat, I'm just kidding. I eat more than pork and beans. At least on, on weekends we have chicken. So it's, it's, it's a great treat. Lastly, what about this idea? A co-worker who only talks, seems to only talk about herself. And, and it, she, she sucks hours of time right out of your life. Give her the resources of your time. A listening ear. Right? She doesn't need to know right now exactly why you do it or why you're there. You don't have to tell her everything up front. Because she may not understand now. But She will. She will, through the gospel. So final thought. If you love people, you'll use money. But if you love money, you'll use people. Let's pray. Jesus, this is a hard passage to understand. But as we went through the progression, Lord, hopefully we saw that Jesus, ultimately you want us to be shrewd in such a way Yes, we're going for a greater prize, a treasure, being welcomed into eternal dwellings. How do we get there? By dying to self and making much of you and making much of the gospel. Making a gospel connection with other people, Jesus. That's what you want us to do with our money and our resources. Our nickels, our dimes, our dollars, our tens of dollars, our twenties, our hundreds, Lord. To make gospel connections with people. Our money Jesus is going to fail someday. Teach me that lesson. Continue to teach me. So how am I going to use it now to make those gospel connections? Lord, continue to challenge our hearts with that this week. I pray that we respond in obedience to one of the ways, one of the examples I mentioned there at the end. That's so in Jesus' name. Amen.